0: There's one instance when I was traveling through northern Kenya, uh, and the journey on this sort of it's basically a truck that had been converted into a bus. So it wasn't particularly comfortable. Anyway, the road was really rocky, and the journey lasted 24 hours, and the driver didn't stop once. So he, you know, at the end of it, he'd been driving for 24 hours without any sort of rest. And that, you know, you just have to almost put it to the back of your mind and forget about it, and hope hope for the best.
1: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host Mason, but today is a Throwback Thursday episode. Uh, We're going to have new episodes for you soon. Just... Building up some interviews now, but I I wanted to throw it back to this episode uh, with Ian, uh, hosted by Travis back in the day, of a 13-month, 25,000-mile trip around Africa, encircling Africa via public transportation. That is a heck of an adventure. Um, I've done some public transportation in uh, Africa, and it it is an experience. It was awesome. I loved it. I can't imagine doing it for over a year of my life. That is insane. Very much looking forward to this one. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in.
2: Welcome back to another Adventure Sports Podcast episode. This is Travis. Ian Packham is a medical researcher turned adventurer. He decided to circumnavigate the African continent by means of public transportation. The trip was the first time anyone had done this, solo and unsupported. During his 13-month, 25,000-mile trip, Ian was mistaken for an undercover UN official during Liberia's presidential election and was denied access to the Democratic Republic of Congo. He was a 2013 runner-up for the National Geographic Traveler Writing Competition, and his new book, Encircle Africa, Around Africa by Public Transport, chronicles his crazy adventure. So Ian, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast from England.
0: Thank you. It's
2: good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. So, man, we have a lot to dig into. You've been a busy <laughs> guy. Um, let's, let's start with your Encircle Africa. I know it's one of the, the, uh, one of the first things you, you really took on. Um, what made you go from medical researcher to deciding to hop on public transportation and travel 25,000 miles around Africa?
0: You know, that's possibly the, the hardest question I ever get asked. Uh, there's, no, <laughs> there's no real answer to that other than the fact I just, uh, I guess I wanted to get away from everything I knew uh, and do some traveling. And this idea of a Africa by public transport just came to me. And once it was in my head, I just couldn't get rid of it. And I knew even if I failed, I just had to try this thing.
2: So had you... I mean, what brought up the idea? Had you read something, or was it just one day you're thinking, you know what, I bet nobody's ever done this?
0: No, actually, the idea of it being at a first came much later, and it was just me looking at a map, trying to think of something interesting to do, some sort of worthwhile travel, that I suddenly realized that Africa is almost sort of doable. It's only connected anywhere else in the world by this tiny little bit in Egypt, so it was very easy to – I say very easy. It was uh, a good idea perhaps to uh, circumnavigate it or at least try.
2: Okay. So now I say public transportation and, and some of us in the Western world might think, well, what's the big deal? So you hop on yeah. a cozy air-conditioned bus or you know maybe a light rail system. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not talking about – comfortable, cozy transportation here. Can you go into a little bit about the the types of things you experienced while trying to take public transportation in Africa?
0: Sure. Um, As you say, uh, public transport in Africa is very different. There are no uh, timetables necessarily. There are no sort of government or council mandated systems. It's very much looser than that. And I sometimes use the term publicly available transport to Come up with the idea of basically anything which is willing to take uh the public locals uh, further down the road so yes there were some buses there were some mini buses but there were canoes ferries lots of journeys on flatbed trucks uh, one memorable journey in in the back of a van delivering freshly made m- meat pies for instance uh, which made me very hungry so it wasn't your typical jump on the bus Pay a routine fare and you know exactly where you're going.
2: (laughs) So you did 31 countries. Where did you start and in which direction did you travel?
0: I started in Tangier in Morocco, uh, purely on the basis that it's the nearest part of Africa to uh, Britain. And then I headed west. So in some respects, I did the hardest part of the continent first.
2: Okay, so you started in Tangier and you went west, uh, you know, meaning south down through Dakar and down towards Cape Town.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously continued from Cape Town up the east coast of Africa up to Egypt and then across the Mediterranean to get back to Morocco.
2: Okay. So this is the first time it had been done unsupported and solo. Do you know if anybody's attempted it in the past?
0: Uh, I don't know if anyone's uh, stupid enough to try it. I know uh, people have done it in various different forms by bike or by car, but this was uh, certainly the first time by publicly available transport.
2: So you went from a, a medical research student, I think. Yeah. What you know that that's that's presumably going to lead to a a, a good career, a good income. Um, why leave that? I mean, a lot of people would say, well, why, why put all that energy into uh, an education and then just step away from it? What, what's the drive for adventure over a career like that?
0: I think my parents would probably say the same thing. Um, it's just I, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just this desire to uh, go out and investigate the world, I suppose. Perhaps this idea that the world we see on TV and even in magazines isn't quite what the world is actually like. Um, And for instance, going around Africa, I was overwhelmed by the uh, friendliness and support I received from locals as I made my way around.
2: So you mentioned uh, the, the view of the world, you know, in, in the media purports uh, or portrays the, uh, the our world is a little differently than it, than it really is. I think a lot of us have found. So what would you say your view or your thoughts about Africa were before you started this adventure? And then how did that differ, um, you know, compare against what you experience when you're out there?
0: I think I had a, a pretty average view of Africa before I set out somewhere uh, dangerous where, you know, you risk being mugged or carjacked sort of on a day to day basis. And yes, Africa does have its problems. There is crime, but it is nowhere near how it is uh, described in, uh, in the media. Uh, in western europe and the U- us and as i say it's uh, so uh, the, the locals were so friendly and so supportive of what i was doing and really wanted to send me away with this positive view of their country
2: yeah we hear that a lot it seems very important for uh, for the locals to make sure that they get the the message across that look media is not portraying this this accurately and and please take that back with you and and tell your your fellow citizens that, you know, they can travel here safely in general. Absolutely. So what words of encouragement would you have to, you know, kick people loose that might be maybe a little fearful or, you know, ones that are at least inspired to go do something like this, you know, maybe not 13 months and 25,000 miles, but what would you say to them to, to inspire them to, to get out and, and visit Africa or other parts of the world that they might not fully understand i think really i just say just go
0: it doesn't really matter where you go for how long you go it's just the act of deciding to do it and take yourself out of your comfort zone and you'll get so much more out of it and out of life in general if you do that
2: right right all right, let's go into some stories then. Um, I'm intrigued with the whole public transportation thing. So first of all, what, uh, what's a good story about a form of public transportation down in Africa that you took that people might be a little bit surprised about?
0: Oh, dear. That's a, <laughs> that's a great question. One of the um, lovely way of getting around cities in Africa is uh, by motorbike taxi. So you uh, jump on the the back. You've got a driver. You jump behind him, and he's able to weave through traffic. Traffic in Africa is quite often really bad, and that's a great way of uh, sort of traveling as a local would, and um, managing to weave through the traffic at the same time.
2: <laughs> it sounds a bit scary, actually. I picture you. I imagine you have a, a pack on and with oh, quite yeah. a bit of. Yeah, quite a bit of your belongings. So, and motorcycles over there are not going to be the large motorcycles we we use in in the United States. You know, in the Western world, these are small motorbikes with uh, probably very little seating area and and carrying capacity.
0: Yeah, it's pretty scary at first. Perhaps I think I just got used to it after a while. And and you're right, like small little things, tiny little wheels, sometimes. So balance with a huge uh, pack on your back as well is quite difficult Um, but some of these drivers are really quite skilled and know what they're doing.
2: (laughs) So was there any point in this journey where you thought what did I get into why did I start this I'm crazy for even thinking I can do this?
0: (laughs) Yeah most days I think (laughs) but um, there were particularly trying times such as being refused entry into the democratic republic of congo uh which really set my mind to thinking you know if i can't get into the democratic republic of congo i can't get into the next countries that i need to go to 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 follow the coast because i need i was picking up my visas along the way and it would set up this whole domino effect for the whole trip Um, and the only way i could actually get around that is to fly sort of 2,000 miles away to a country where I didn't need a visa and then slowly work my way back up and around the uh, parts of the continent that I'd missed. And that was this very traumatic uh, sort of three weeks for me doing that.
2: So you had, uh, why 2,000 miles? I mean, so if you're going down the the west coast of Africa, yeah. Congo does hit the the ocean, but it's it seems like a, a small sliver. So did you have to fly to... Somewhere, you know, at some point uh, in internal, in, in an interior point of the country or to the continent, or
0: yeah, that's right. So that small slither you mentioned, it's sort of like twenty miles. But I felt if I was doing this, I had to travel overland as much as possible. Um, and the country next door to that sliver is Angola, which I didn't have a visa for, so I had to skip all of Angola and fly into Namibia. Uh, which allows people to just fly in with a permit and then work my way up back into Angola having got a visa and back round in this very convoluted
2: trail. <laughs> that definitely adds some character to the trip for sure. <laughs> a little bit of back, back, backtracking.
0: Yeah, it, it was quite a sort of depressing thing to have to do to sort of head all the way back up north and then
2: head back south again. It, it was quite a trying period for the journey. Yeah, no doubt. So you passed through 31 countries. What would you say was the most amazing country or experience you had in in one of these locations?
0: I really enjoyed all those countries you're not really supposed to enjoy going to. Um, so Nigeria, which has got this really negative um, idea about it in, in the Western media, is a, a fantastic country where I didn't have any problems, no problems with bribery or anything like that. Again, Sierra Leone and Liberia just coming out of civil war, just trying to make themselves nation states. They, they were the friendliest nations I traveled through and really had no problems. People just looking after me all the way through those countries, giving me food, taking me to the right sort of place to wait for the transport to turn up. It was
2: just an amazing experience. It really was. Yeah, uh, that's great to hear. So you mentioned uh, political elections. Um, you had There was some su- suspicion about you, uh, uh, a white guy down there traveling Africa during this time. Tell me a little bit more about the, uh, the elections and civil wars and some of the issues that you faced down there at that time because of it.
0: Yes, I mean, in the 13 months I was in Africa, there were actually uh, 35 different local parliamentary or presidential elections the majority of which were declared free and fair so this old idea of africa being corrupt and leaders stealing elections isn't uh, necessarily true anymore and i think that's important to say uh, but it was when i was traveling through uh, liberia and visiting these really small towns that people just don't really visit because there's no reason to that the policeman Realized or reasoned that the the only reason I could be in his country would be to to uh, to be an undercover UN agent, making sure the presidential election was taking pl- place correctly. And he just couldn't see that I'd be there just to visit.
2: They didn't buy the, the fact that you were just down there to, to go on some adventure. It must be a, a backstory to it that they wanted right. to, to ferret out.
0: He's just he's just saying, why would you come all the way from England? Just to see this little town, there's got to be something more to it.
2: (laughs) So was it a matter of just being questioned or curiosity, or did they actually hold up the trip because of it? It
0: was just a curiosity. And you can imagine if you're a policeman in a small town in Liberia, there's not a lot that happens. So anything out of the ordinary is just going to grab your attention. And I found that a lot of the time I'd just be sitting in a cafe and someone would come up and just start talking to me in, in a way that, you wouldn't in in Britain certainly. Just asking me why I was there and whether I was enjoying myself and those sorts of very basic questions.
2: So, did you have any issues with border crossings? I said you you mentioned that you know Nigeria. You're kind of surprised uh, that it wasn't an issue. Um, were there areas where you really had to you really delayed or had issues getting across the borders, other than the the whole Congo thing?
0: Actually, it was all. Pretty easy. I think the longest I waited for a visa was a week, and that was getting that Angolan visa that they really shouldn't have given me because you're supposed to apply from your home country. And I'd say the the average time waiting for visas was probably 48 hours. So that's pretty impressive for African bureaucracy, I
1: think. Well, yeah, that's not bad. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode.
2: So you, had, you hadn't planned the entire thing with getting your, your paperwork and documentation beforehand, or did you just uh, plan some of it and just leave some caution to the wind?
0: Uh, I don't actually think I had a single visa before I left. Wow. So <laughs> um, various different, really boring reasons that I, I won't go into. And it, it it worked really well. I don't know if I was lucky or not, but I didn't have that many problems.
2: Wow, that's pretty surprising. Would you recommend somebody take that approach in the future? Or do you think you got lucky?
0: It does really depend on where you're going. You know, Africa is this huge uh, continent. I went through 31 countries. There are 54 on the continent so it really does depend where you're going but if you're going for sort of a long-term travel you simply can't get all the visas you need before you go because they will uh, expire before you get to the place you're going
2: to (laughs) that's a good point you get visas for some countries and you have to wait on others and while the the other countries finally come through the the original countries have expired and you got to go back it's probably a never-ending loop (laughs) exactly it must be okay so for a naive westerner i'm saying me, I'll be completely candid. I know very little about Africa. Um, Give me the travel guide, you know, the, the, from the person who's had boots on the ground. um, Give me the experience or go into some detail about what it is I would experience down there um, that I might not imagine that I would.
0: Oh, okay. So for me, Africa wasn't about seeing things like Um, I don't know, if you came to Europe, you'd want to see the museums or the castles, that sort of thing. Africa is about the people and the experience. And everyday life there, particularly in smaller towns, is still so different to how we live our lives um, that it's just worth going for that point of view. You know, going and buying food every day in the market, uh, negotiating for the prices for food, just everything is so different. And that's what makes Africa special for me.
2: Yeah, it's hard to imagine the concept of negotiating for the price of food. You know, we're, we're just, we either go to a restaurant or we go buy groceries. The price is the price. I cannot imagine walking into a market somewhere and offering less than what they were asking.
0: Exactly. But if you offer the first price they ask you in Africa, they just look at you like you're completely insane. No one does it, and it is expected that you negotiate down and you, you, know, you pick the, the best fruit on the stall, and
2: all the rest of it. Did you have issues with uh, a language barrier?
0: That actually surprised me in, in not being a, a major problem, um, though I did try and speak French and, and Portuguese and Arabic as much as I could. Um, there was always somebody who would speak English, or someone who knew someone who spoke English, um, and they would go, you know, far out of their way to to be able to communicate with me.
2: So, how about your your route? It sounds like you didn't do a whole bunch of planning going into it. Did you have, uh, you know, obviously you had your general route going counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have? Did you go down to the detail of? of the route you would take, meaning certain highways and transportation types, or did you leave it completely up to, I'm going to go counterclockwise around Africa and just see how it falls?
0: It was basically, I'm going counterclockwise and we'll see what happens. Um, You know, you can't look up these sorts of um, routes for public transport on, uh, on the internet. So I didn't know what routes... Uh, buses and trucks and the like would be taking, Um, but if you look at a map of Africa, actually a lot of the highways do follow the coastal routes, so I knew from that point of view I would be sticking to the coast as much as I could, and after that I just left it to a a day-to-day trial and error, if you like, and my aim was to, to move on 50 miles every day
2: Okay, so you had a general idea of the ground you wanted to cover, the direction you wanted to go, but other than that, you left it all up to adventure at that point.
0: Exactly, yeah.
2: So you stuck along the coast, which I imagine is, you know, coastal uh, sections of, of countries and continents are typically the, the more populated ones. Um, did you get a chance to go inland, um, more into the outback, so to speak, mm-hmm. of Africa and experience that?
0: Yeah, first of all, I'll say you're absolutely right. The coast is where the majority of people in Africa live. Um, And actually, the only times I really went inland was when uh, things went wrong, uh, such as not getting into the Democratic Republic of Congo, or when for my own safety, I had to go inland. so I uh, skirted around southern Somalia through Kenya and Ethiopia for obvious
2: reasons. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, that brings up the the next question. You know, in any one of these uh, world travel, you know, adventure travel episodes we do, there's always uh, the issue of safety and concerns of safety. As you know, as you went into it and you were planning it and stuff that you experienced along the way, um, tell me a good story about uh, a time when when you weren't feeling so safe or things kind of went sideways on you.
0: Well. Um... Yes, Uh, there are a couple of instances, not too many actually, Uh, but there is an instance where I'd sort of almost taken sort of a tourist day trip off the coast of Senegal, so it's still quite early on in the trip, and I returned to the mainland, got off the boat, I'd been a bit lazy and my camera was just sticking out of my pocket, and I had my passport and my wallet and everything else on me in various pockets, and these guys suddenly sort of approached me and they were pretending to sell things in a way that people do in Africa. They hang clothes off their arms. And then very quickly, I realized they were sort of trying to get into my pockets. And there was this worrying couple of minutes of me sort of trying to fight them off and uh, running up the street to, with everything in my pockets. Uh, uh, and luckily they didn't get any, get away with anything other than a couple of tissues I had in a back pocket. <laughs> That's a pretty
2: good outcome. <laughs> was there ever a time you know, that was more theft, you know, at that point. Yeah. Just just you know, fear that somebody was gonna steal any time uh steal something. So was there any time during this that you felt like your your safety, your uh your well being was at risk? Mm.
0: Um I really don't think there was, to be honest with you. I it's not like I ever had a, a gun pointed at me or anything like that. There were uh, trying times at a couple of the borders. Um with people demanding money with menace, I suppose you would say. But I never really, truly felt endangered in that respect.
2: Uh, That's good to hear. I like to ask these questions and for these stories of fear of safety more because I want to help get the point out that um, the more and more people we talk to that, that do world travel, the more we find that they never really felt at harm you know at, at risk of harm and you know it's not to try to get some some crazy story of oh yes i felt my life was threatened but what we hear more and more uh, most often is that no you know what i travel for 13,000 I'm 25,000 miles 13 months and i never really felt unsafe i love to hear the that come out of people's mouth who have actually been there because as we know, you know, the media can portray it in a totally different way. All we see is the bad that happens and you automatically assume that there's no way I'm going down there if that's what it looks like. You know?
0: mm-hmm. What's quite interesting is when I was sort of telling people about the trip before I left, everyone who hadn't been to Africa was saying, oh my God, you're going to die and everyone who had been to Africa said, oh, you're going to have an amazing time, good luck. Uh, so that was quite an interesting counterpoint.
2: Yeah, exactly, and I think it's it's difficult, even when the people tell you that you know things are going to be fine. The ones that have been there and truly experienced, I think sometimes it's hard to accept that they can. Oh, well, you just got lucky, you know, you you just got lucky and nothing happened to you. But surely, if I go down there, you know, there's something's going to go up.
0: Of course, and I think it's to a certain extent it's human nature to fear the unknown um but yeah it's also human nature to go and experience that unknown and step out from the cave and create cities and go on holidays and all the rest of it
2: yeah yeah exactly so back to the public transport bit you said the the kind of the more surprising mode of public transport to you was on riding around on the small motorcycles uh, through crazy traffic um what are some of the other things we might not expect um you know, to, to experience down there. You said you you had to take canoe rides across water?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, river crossings, I guess, you know, in Britain, if there's a river, there's a bridge, and you just drive over it and don't even pay any attention. Whereas, uh, particularly in the, the less developed parts of Africa, places like Sierra Leone and Liberia, you get to the river and you all decamp into traditional sort of wooden dugout canoes uh, across the river and then there'll be another form of transport waiting to take you on from
2: the other way. Okay, so these are these are still organized uh, ferry entrepreneurs, we call them. Uh, so these are people who are waiting to do it. It's not like you have to find a local person with a boat to, uh, to get you across.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess if you were sort of um, out in the bush, then you might have to shout a bit and find somebody. But at these uh, sort of well-known crossings, there will be sort of private individuals who have these uh, canoes waiting to take people across for a small fee. Okay.
2: So how about uh, a time when public transport had you a little concern? Not, not so much that you were being taken advantage of, but more about, <laughs> about your safety in the, in the transport method that you had decided to take that day.
0: Yeah, I mean, actually, for the whole journey, the biggest risk was always going to be uh, having a a road traffic accident. Um, And some of these uh, drivers um, don't drive particularly safely. Their aim is to get to the other end as quickly as possible so they can turn around and make as much money as they can. Uh, So there were numerous times when I was um, slightly worried and concerned about how I was travelling there's one instance when I was traveling through northern Kenya uh, and the journey on this sort of, it's basically a truck that had been converted into a bus, so it wasn't particularly comfortable. Anyway, the road was really rocky and the journey lasted 24 hours and the driver didn't stop once, so that he, you know, at the end of it he'd been driving for 24 hours without any sort of rest and that, you know, you just have to almost put it to the back of your mind and forget about it and hope hope for the best. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that that's quite the ride. So I gotta I gotta ask, what are people doing when they need to go to the bathroom? I mean, nobody can wait twenty four hours to take a break, so to speak. I mean, sure,
0: I mean there were sort of you know there were toilet breaks every so often, but there certainly wasn't enough time for the driver to to get any kip, and there wasn't you know any swapping of drivers
2: or anything like that. <laughs> so no, it's, no sightseeing. That's just a uh, no, beeline
0: straight through. People <laughs> eating on the bus, all sorts of things.
2: Uh, that's great. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about your writing. So you decided, like we we mentioned earlier in the show, um, you were a medical research student. I think were you in the the process? I mean, you were in the the middle of your education. Is that right?
0: So I uh, finished my PhD, and I was. Uh, working for a living, but doing uh, still doing medical research, yeah.
2: So obviously the draw for adventure and to be a writer uh, really kind of took over. Um, let's talk about the, the book you wrote about this whole journey. Um, the book was Encircle Africa, Around Africa by Public Transport. So tell me about that.
0: Well, uh, very basically, it is sort of the detailed narrative account of my journey Um, I tried to make it uh, as much like a story as I could so uh, hopefully and I'm told it does it it flows as a story rather than being this disjointed collection of sort of almost random bus journeys.
2: So had you had a, uh, a lot of writing experience going into this or was this kind of your first foray into documenting stuff?
0: I think I'd always enjoyed uh, writing, but I certainly didn't have a a secret writing career. I sort of um, just went for this. And when I set out, the intention wasn't really to write a book. But as I was traveling around and meeting people and when I came back, people kept telling me that I should write this up. So I used uh, diaries that I just kept for myself for the whole journey to create this narrative account.
2: And this kind of parlayed into uh, other writing and contributions to blogs and, and uh, other uh, articles and whatnot. It, I saw that you even had uh, a post up on uh, on Alistair Humphreys. Uh, was it his blog that you put something up?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I came back, I wrote the book, and that took about as long as the actual journey took. Um, And I realized I really enjoyed this and people were starting to get interested. So I I kept doing it and I've been um, uh, adding to my own blog and to other blogs, doing writing for magazines, meeting and getting involved with other other adventurers like uh, Alistair Humphreys uh, and really just enjoying my writing and adventuring life.
2: So where else can people go alongside uh, your book? Where else can they find your writings and learn more about uh, the adventures that you've been on? And we're going to talk about some of the other adventures because this Africa one is, is just one of many.
0: Yeah, so if you head to my website, which is encircleAfrica.org, then there are pages for all the adventures I've been on. And there's a portfolio page with links to lots of different types of writing I've done, and the uh, sort of motivational speaking I have done, and a little bit more about me myself as well.
2: Okay, good. Well, we'll point people in that direction. It's in circleafrica.org. And, of course, check out uh, Ian's uh, page on Facebook in Circle Africa about that. And I imagine there's a Twitter account and some other Instagram and whatnot uh, that they'll find there as well, right? Of course, that's right. Okay. So let's talk about some of the other adventures. You have... uh, Doing the Africa thing obviously was a huge adventure. It took a lot, a big portion of your life to do, and uh, was a, a great experience. But you've uh, you've ventured out and done quite a few other things. Um, one of the ones that intrigues me was the the behind the the lines of World War II. Um, what is uh, is this something that you're working on, or you've you've done in the past? I know it's pretty recent.
0: Yeah, that's my uh, next big adventure uh, for which I'll be actually launching a a crowdfunding attempt in the next few weeks. And what that's about is I had a great uncle who was conscripted into the British Army during World War II, and he went uh, through North Africa and then uh, up through Italy and across Europe just uh, doing what men like him did as soldiers. And we discovered this photo album of his. So the idea is to retrace his steps, and to retake his photos and sort of retell his story as this ordinary guy stuck in this situation he really couldn't control and how he got around that and you know his survival basically.
2: Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, a bit of a, a walk through time for you as you uh, as you retrace that. That's pretty cool. Well, speaking of a walk through time, I was looking and I I saw your Scandinavia sixty um, track. Um, this is where you hike the length of Scandinavia from Denmark to, uh, the northernmost point of the mainland Europe up in Norway. Um, but the neat thing was you, you, used a 1960s version of a photo's guide.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I had this idea of using an old guidebook to, to go somewhere and it actually took a very long time to find a guidebook of a, a reasonable vintage, um, to, in order to go in, and do this, and the strange thing about that trip was actually how little has changed from the nineteen sixties to now.
2: Oh, really? See, I would think that quite a bit had changed, and it would be uh, it would be more of a, a walk through the past and to, to see how they saw it, you know, through their eyes back then. But you're saying it's it's fairly similar even to this day.
0: Yeah, it it really really surprised me. You know, if the guidebook said there is four buses a day going from town A to town B. There were four buses a day, and the times may have changed, but there were still the buses there. Um, And all the way through, of course, restaurants changed their names and things like that, but actually the fundamental basics of traveling remain the same.
2: Yeah, funny how that works, huh? (laughs) Now, I can't pass up... um... The Mount Kenya climb. In 2011, you climbed Mount Kenya with some friends. And this is uh, Africa's second highest peak. It's over 17,000 feet. And you guys, uh, you basically climbed to the point where you could do so without um, more extensive equipment. So you were something like just seven, 700 feet below the summit. Now that's, uh, that's definitely up there. That's some serious altitude. Tell us about that.
0: Okay, I'll just correct you briefly it was 2001 rather than 2011
2: oh sorry <laughs> um so
0: i think at that point that was almost probably the first time i'd left europe um so we went it was actually sort of a, a school trip but part of that was to to hike to that point at which we could go no further without ropes and it it really did teach me a lot about myself how uh, determined and motivated I was to do something like that. It's not the hardest uh, trek in the world, but it's not the easiest either. And I had no real history of walking or trekking or mountain climbing. So as I say, it showed me just what I was capable of if I just put my fear to one side and basically got on with it.
2: So what kind of how did you have to be outfitted to do this? Because, you know, most peaks, 17,000 feet, um, you know, that's a pretty serious undertaking. Um, If somebody wanted to, the average Joe wanted to get up to over 17,000 feet. I mean, obviously, like we said, the the summit um, was a little bit more difficult. It sounds like it was a pretty, pretty extreme at that, that last 700 feet, but or did you have to outfit yourselves, or was this a, a typical backpacking setup that you had to do it? We had
0: um, a sort of basic hiking gear, I'd say, not mountaineering gear, just hiking gear. So good boots, good backpack, uh, um, tents, because we were camping at various uh, sites on the mountain. I think it took us four or five days to do it, so there was camping, um, And up towards the top, it gets very cold, so we have to have all this cold weather gear as well with us.
2: Huh. That's pretty cool. I think I might have just added a bucket list item. I don't see myself ever ever getting up Everest. I just don't have the desire. (laughs) You know, these are elements that I don't want to deal with and and gear that I don't want to uh, procure, but... The, uh, the idea of getting up to that kind of elevation above sea level and being able to do it with, uh, you know, as more of a, a weekend warrior and, and not a professional mountain climber sounds pretty alluring.
0: It absolutely is. And I'm told it's actually a harder climb than Kilimanjaro, which is the, the tallest peak in Africa, but only a few hundred feet taller. So it's a well worth doing and, and not quite so known about. So I think it has that allure to it as
2: well. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So how about the Island of Man trip? Tell me a little bit about that. I've always been intrigued with Island of Man just because of the the motorcycle race that's down there. Um, but other than that, I don't know a lot about it. So what was that all about?
0: Sure. Um, part of the reason I, I wanted to go was because I didn't know very much about it, and I don't think many people know very much about the Island of Man at all. Um, so it was a very basic. I had a week off uh, from what I was doing, and I just... Uh, decided to walk around the coast of the Isle of Man. It's 96 miles, so very easy to do over a week, camping each night and just uh, experiencing the outdoors, being away from people and having a really great time
2: doing it. So there was, uh, you alluded to finding a message in a bottle during this trip. Yes,
0: that was uh, something I I guess I've always dreamed of happening. Um, I'm walking... Just one day, halfway through the trip, I came along this uh, jar of instant coffee, this empty jar of instant coffee, and this little uh, brown envelope in it. And I thought, this is fantastic. It's from 1790 or something. It turned out it was from a couple of months before, but it was from uh, an artist in, in Dublin, in Ireland. And he'd thrown it into Dublin Bay, and it had made its way around to the other side, to the eastern side of the isle of man um and it was just uh, a little message saying if you get this can you contact me and tell me so i can sort of map out where they've got to oh
2: that's neat so i assume you contacted him how did that go
0: i did i contacted him said this is exactly where i found it this was the date i found it but unfortunately i've never heard back from him so i don't know if you found any of the others or not
2: oh no <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it didn't just end there that's crazy <laughs> So you have the, uh, the World War II um, uh, following in the footsteps of, uh, of your relative. Are there any other things on the horizon that you're thinking about doing moving forward?
0: I mean, obviously my mind is sort of focused on uh, Behind the Lines at the moment, uh, which is involving lots of sort of archive research, heading into London to the great libraries uh, and doing research there. But of course, I've always got the next trip in mind, and there is so much of the world I'd I'd like to see. I think somewhere like India or Indonesia is uh, ripe for exploration, and there must be so many places in those countries that just don't come to the attention of the everyday tourist
2: yeah it sounds like you uh you're intrigued with with just that you know not uh, not traveling the areas that are are familiar you know again in the western world, but uh delving down into the the stuff that is uh, less understood maybe and that's uh that's pretty cool to uh, to take those adventures for sure okay so the you're going to do a Kickstarter for the uh, behind the lines uh, when is it what kind of time frame do you think you're going to be doing this in
0: um I mean, the, the crowdfunding is in the process of happening, so that will be the next few weeks, hopefully, and then the actual trip will uh, begin sort of September uh, this year, so it's not too far away.
2: Okay, so people can watch uh, watch your social media for whichever uh, crowdfunding campaign you launch? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So do you continue to practice in, in medical research, or is it just on hold for now while you're, you're uh, fulfilling your adventurous wishes, or what's your, what are your thoughts there? You're just going to kind of keep adventuring until you get tired of it?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm still a, a medical researcher, so I have to sort of balance all of this adventure and writing I do with, you know, having only a certain number of days off a year, um, um, and just sort of having all my weekends and spare time filled with looking at maps and as I say, going to libraries and doing
2: research. <laughs> so yeah, one way or another, you're researching. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it keeps you busy. I'm sure. All right. All right. Well, cool. I mean, we will, uh, of course, put all your your links to your your site and Facebook, and uh, absolutely put the link to your book for Amazon uh, in our show notes and steer people in your direction. I'm interested to see what you do coming up, and uh, I'm very interested to see the uh, what comes of the behind the lines behind the lines uh, expedition as well. So. Ian, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I can uh, I can really appreciate uh, the adventures that you're taking part in, and I uh, appreciate the uh, the inspiration that you're providing us to to do things like maybe go down and climb Mount Kenya.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. And if I've been an inspiration, then that's my job done for the day. I think.
2: Well, good. That's the whole point of the show. So. Uh, Folks, until the next episode, uh, seriously, get out there, find a new bucket list item, and definitely try something new. Ian,
1: thanks very much. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.